Hey, it's Antonio, and we're back with another episode of Who Cares If You Listen. Today is January 19th, 2021, and I had the pleasure of sitting down with Lorenzo Patino. And Lorenzo, I knew him from when I used to hang around at the courthouse back when people did things in person. Actually, way before, because the last time I was doing things in person, he wasn't there anymore. Lorenzo was the sheriff of Carlton County, which sounds a lot more exciting and glamorous than perhaps it is, but he shared some really cool stories with me. He's originally from California. I didn't know that he almost did a PhD in forensic linguistics, and then I did know that he's very active in the stand-up community. We have a lot more in common than I thought we did. I had fun talking with him, and if you don't like listening to it, well, who cares if you listen? So there were a few parts in this episode where the audio just kind of dropped. I'm still learning the technology part. And then I added a ding at one point where I had to chop off about a minute so that there was a very clear segue. So if you notice any sort of technical problems, well, good for you. Oh, no, that's great. That's perfect. Okay, I can move it closer. Is that better? Okay. It's all audio. So... Oh, is it? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well... I, tr I tried doing video, and then it just ended up being hot garbage, and I don't want to deal with YouTube, mm. and it was a lot of extra work just so people could look at me staring at a webcam. Well, it is a, a lovely background you have. It's, it's yeah, this is this is where I do my, my lawyer work when I'm, you know, acting very important and sophisticated with my box of cheap cigars and, like, leftover headphones and an empty wine bottle. Hey, you, you do what you can to survive, right? I did a job interview here. I just used, like, and Microsoft Teams has the, the background, the blur feature. Yeah. So it just kind of looks like a nice mosaic. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, it's my basement. I do woodworking and all that stuff. I just do it through lighting. So it's you, you can't see anything but me and my stupid streamer chair. So You've kind of got, I, and I don't know if this reference is lost on you, but, like, I grew up watching Young and the Restless with my mom. Yeah. And it's like the it's like there's no backdrop lighting. It's all it's just all right, right on the actor. All right Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Yeah, it's one of those. So I got you know I do the. Um, are we on now? Like, are we recording? Now? Yeah, okay. and we've been running since the beginning. Okay, yeah. so I do. Um, you, you know Trevor Thompson, local Ottawa comedian. Legend. Legend in his own mind. I do the uh, the technical stuff for his Facebook live show. So. Part of the experience on that is the post show, which I'm like the co-host of it so i have everything kind of set up for video streaming and um so was this something that you just did organically or did you just pick it up during covid time or um, like this is something in your back pocket from so, before so you've seen trevor perform before right like he's very yeah i've seen him at yucks a couple of times yeah, he's very angry very political um he he is he is ripe for youtube like if he could well, I, I won't say YouTube now. I'll say YouTube maybe like uh, two years ago when I first pitched this to them. I was like, hey, you should like get a video camera, like pull up a news story. Like there's so many people doing it and you're actually funny, unlike a lot of people doing it. And like you could make jokes and do it. So like in, was, I think it was summer 2019, I like got him set up with a camera and everything to like, hey, you should like do this. And he's like the most technologically inept person I have ever met that's under 50 years old like he's just like he 
does not know how to do anything. So, like, it lasted for a little while. He got mad because only, like, ten people were watching. And I'm like, well, it's got to start somewhere. So then he had all the equipment because I just left it there. And then, of course, COVID happened. And then uh, he just started filming himself on his phone. I think the first two episodes of Trevor's Pad back in March of 2020 were on his phone and they were terrible. Uh, so I messaged him saying like, hey, you know, you have all that stuff I gave you. So like I spend one night just walking him through how to set it up. And then I figured out that I could just run it like from here and just have him like like we're doing, like call in and like I could just capture the screen and blah, blah, blah. And it, like the first few episodes look rough because I was fig like basically teaching myself how to be a stream producer over COVID. But as you know, you do something enough times, you start to figure it out. So he was, um, he was doing a show every night. We did a show every night from the beginning of lockdown in March to, I want to say Easter. So like a month. And then, Jesus. yeah, it was rough. Like it was rough. And then how long were the shows? I think I checked into one. Yeah. Um, generally around one and a half to two hours. And like, that first month of the lockdown, everyone's panicking. Everyone was like, like I was, you know, I was, I was drunk for a good chunk of it. Um, I was also finishing the second term of the paralegal thing. So I was like super stressed. I had the kids. I was, I was working, but there wasn't a ton of stuff to do. As you know, working in the legal field, when everything shut down for those first three months, there really wasn't a whole lot to do because there wasn't any courts. Right. And like everyone was still getting all their, online stuff set up so kind of focused on that and um yeah he 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 we we got it now down to like we're doing it twice a week because we we're trying to produce like a higher quality show than just like the every night just jumping in and like i started writing recently now that i'm like done with school i actually can turn my mind to look at you like you can tell i work in the legal field turn my mind i'm turning my mind to comedy writing and so like i i wrote like a big uh, as you know, I'm I'm from the states, and that country has not given has given me so much material. Just even in the last two weeks, has just been just a why? What's been going on? I, well, I you know I don't even know. I was watching on on the sixth, and I'm just like I I don't even know what's happening here. Like this is just beyond anything that I had seen before. But how are you, Antonio? This is it's been too long. I haven't seen you in like a year and a bit. Yeah, and even then, it was like we're just kind of you know, ships crossing in the night at the courthouse talking about who our favorite and least favorite paralegals were. Mm. They're now your colleagues. I know. So tread lightly. I know. I am so nervous. Uh, so there's two things that surprised me, like taking that whole program. So I finished it. I'm done. Uh, I'm currently in the last week of my placement, which is just me going to work. Um, but I found out there was like paralegal rules of conduct that you're like not supposed to... Um, <laughs> like disparage sorry. other paralegals and i'm sure sorry, i'm sure sorry, there's sorry. a lawyer equivalent of it too that you're not supposed to disparage other licensees right like you so can there's tell a funny, me there's a rule right funny funny thing about that right there's this running joke that i have and i i'm kind of at the point where i don't care about putting this shit on a podcast anymore like giver we're just talking where... about the rules right that's all we're doing. well no and not only the rules yeah they have the rules about you know being civil towards mm -hmm. other licensees and you know being nice and all that shit and then in ottawa specifically the county of carlton law people always like to celebrate the fact if you go to any ccla events that ottawa is a very collegial bar now, the only time anyone's ever reminded me of that is when they send me an angry, threatening letter like, how dare you not do the thing that I told you to 
Ottawa is a collegial bar. Don't cross me or I'll report you to the Law Society. Like, this is your last warning. Hmm. Well, given how little they do, I wouldn't take that that seriously. So I don't know, like... Well, so this is the thing. People don't realize that as articling students and as junior lawyers. I was constantly told that, like, keep your insurance on speed dial because someone's going to come down on you in the hammer of God when you forget to tick the box with a blue pen when you're supposed to use a red pen. And then... You know, you hear all these stories and you see these people that are veritable train wrecks that still haven't gotten disbarred. And right. you think, well, yeah. you know, maybe maybe, maybe I should just focus on doing good work and not be living in complete and abject fear all the time. Right. And, and like, I was also surprised that there was a rule that you're supposed to treat, like, the court with respect and, uh, you know, courtesy and... Are, there, are there, you saying... There are, are you saying as the man, the former sheriff... Yes. Of of Ottawa, you know. Yeah. Without without the hat and the gold star, I sadly. Wish I but that. I wish I had that. As the former sheriff of Ottawa, are you saying that you were not afforded the respect that your rank and office well, should have given it's you? It's funny you say that because that's the only time I was treated with respect is when I was carrying a weapon on me. So I mean that. What kind of a weapon? Uh, the baton, like one of those, like the extendable batons. It was badass. <laughs> like like it was like out of loss like i remember the the bad guy in lost ben had it he had it like where it's like it's like this big uh for for the listeners it's maybe about eight inches uh maybe, maybe nine and then you just flick it now that that was the trick is like you had to know like how to flick your wrist and like when you flick your wrist then it just jumps out and it's this extendable metal baton those things those ones don't those ones don't look as cool as like the old school like lead pipe with the hand yeah I mean, yeah it was... I, I gotta hide it we had that we had uh was it pepper spray for feeling threatened you can use it those are the nice little loopholes that were built and then what was the other one? Oh, and handcuffs and like we, we a lot of the course like of use of force was learning how to like put on the handcuffs and the baton work like if you need to actually do it but like the ministry stresses you're supposed to disengage at all because because at the end of the day it's like you have a bulletproof vest and i'm wearing a bulletproof vest and it's like expired because they don't want to pay for a new one because i was just a delegate even though had something happened to me that would have been a gold mine for me in my personal injury suit presuming i survived but they uh yeah they they I, I can just tell you right now, I'm so glad I didn't get that job permanently because this would be the worst time to be doing that job. Like, going into all these strangers' homes, it's like evictions have never been more politically charged, I guess would be the right way to say it. But, like, yep, yep, um, yep, yep. No thanks. I, I have to say, we, we're, we've just crossed the 10 minute threshold and this has already exceeded my expectations. I'm, I'm, I'm super excited because so, for the longest time I knew you as the guy at the courthouse, you know, with all respect and love to your colleagues, you were the one that would like tell me what it is. You know, if I'd leave a message, you'd call back. I'd actually like, I'd get stuff from you. Like I, you know, I, I had a feeling you had stories. And for the longest time, you know, maybe even now, I don't I don't think I'm going to get like the really like the grade A stuff on my podcast. But I want to hear about your work as the sheriff. Like, what was the coolest thing you ever seized? Uh, so, OK, so I never got to. So, OK, 
here's here's the the main part of the job is evictions. So that's that's for lack of a better way of saying it, and this is a terrible way of saying it. That's the bread and butter of the job. Not 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 like Aww. not like the ministry's there to make money off of it, but uh, they charge a lot. But um, that's the thing you do the most often. So in Ottawa, when I did it, which I believe is very different now, um, there was a maximum. So there's two officers per in Ottawa, which I know is still the case. Should not be the case. It's too big of a city for that. But we would do six evictions a day each. So maximum of 12 evictions a day. Okay. Um, Were you at capacity? Because I've never been able to sell a house. It's been so hard to do. For evictions? Yeah. Mean? Were you doing like like what is that? Like thirty a week? Yeah. Yeah. Around that. Yeah. More than that. Wow. But like um uh so like if you go to like Cornwall, Brockville, any of those little towns outside that you know those courthouses, they yep. do what we do in a in a week. We do they do that in a year. Maybe two weeks. So like Perth, all those places, like they don't do the volume of Ottawa. There was talks at a certain point of um, bringing in three officers for Ottawa and surrounding regions. So like Renfrew and then basically scheduling a day a week where one of the three officers goes out to Renfrew. One goes to Brockville, one goes to Cornwall. One go it makes more sense because then you don't have all these other officers who are only working part time being trained in all the other areas. I digress. Anyway. Uh, so because I was a delegate, I wasn't the permanent officer. I only really did evictions, uh, and crown summons, which were the, and eight serving eight tens, which was like, that is the worst thing in the world serving eight tens. Cause like, usually the information's no good. I, one time I got sent out to a field on Innes Boulevard and I'm like, there's no address. There, I, I called the number for the complainant. I'm like, I don't know where to go. I took a picture of it so I could send it to my manager being like, there's nothing here. Like, I, I don't know where to go. I sent it back to the crown and you know, crown attorneys are always nice, compassionate, understanding people. Um, they sometimes got very upset with me, especially with crown subpoenas. I'm like, I don't know where you want me to go. Uh, usually the information was bad too, because like, you know, by the time something gets to trial, Right, like that's... so for the for the lay for the lay person, an yes. information is like an indictment, but for like petty things. Mm -hmm. So if I say that you pushed me and I felt harassed, sorry, I could lay an information. I don't mean in yeah. I sorry, I'm I'm jumping around. I don't mean information in that regard. I mean uh, information in terms of like y you give a witness your name and address to an officer, right? And then and it was bad. Right, that information. So like, it's not even that it was bad. It's just like three years old. So like the crown never like, or even the investigating officer doesn't update that, but they give it to the sheriff. And then I'm running out there like an asshole, knocking on people's doors, trying to serve crown subpoenas. And it's like, no one's there. Um, coolest seizure I was a part of was uh, when I was training and I went to the market to a, it was a, you'll love this. It was a CRA seizure. Um, and it, they directed us to seize and sell uh, alcohol from a bar that was in arrears in uh, in the market. I don't think it's even there anymore, surprise, surprise. And um, we went in there and how it works is you seal, you seize all of the sealed liquor bottles and- Okay, so only the sealed ones. You're not correct. getting like a half bottle of Bacardi. Right, so you t get all the sealed bottles and you take it to the Bank Street Depot and turn it all into the, the LCBO. They cut you a check and CRA gets a check. So. Um, we walked in there. He had, I remember that the officer who trained me, like had the moving guys out front and he's like, okay, just hang in there. We're going to go talk to them. He goes in there and he's like, look, 
we're going to take, you know, uh, he's like, I look, I see here maybe $1,500 of booze, maybe 2000 And it was before Christmas too. And it's like, it was like 10 a.m., something like that. So he's like, you, the guy's like, the, the manager was just freaking out. He's like, you can't take this. Like we have, uh, uh, we have a Christmas party coming at lunch. And he's like, okay. He's like, you got an hour to get your people, uh, like talk to your owners and come here with more money than what I think this alcohol is worth. So they did, and they came, and I think they gave us like thirty-five hundred, maybe four thousand dollars. And so Terry, Terry called the. So I shouldn't say Terry. The sheriff at the time called the called the mover guys off. He's like, okay. He gave the report to the CRA. He gave them the money, and they came back saying, why didn't you seize the booze also in addition to the money? And and he was Stone like, Stone Cold. And it's like. Well, he's in his in in the sheriff's mind. It was well. At the end of the day, he has discretion to 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 enforce the order how he sees fit, and so he did. And the taxpayer got more money than had we would have seized the the alcohol. Granted, as the CR agent point, pointed out, we would have received more had we taken everything. But in his mind, it was like, well, they can still stay open, do business, and now they know we're serious. So. That was that was one of the more interesting things of like in terms of the procedure and like dealing with the the CRA. Uh, I can tell you, my most interesting experience was a um, uh, and this is a long story, so I apologize. First, first off, uh, this property w- is in Greeley, and have you seen True Detective? I don't know what that is. True no. Detective is a show with uh, it was a few years ago it was with Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. It's very good. First season's amazing. Uh, other second one not so great. But the first season had uh, it's like in Louisiana or like the South, and uh, they go to this one like junkyard kind of place, and there's all these booby traps and things like that. It's episode four, if you've seen that one. And this place uh, and like junk all over the yard. Uh, it was, I believe it was March, so still snow on the ground. And I remember talking to the lawyer who I knew from the court. Um, he was a nice enough guy. I don't think I, I mean, let's say I didn't really think too highly of him. I'll put it that way, but he was nice to me. Um, and he said, Hey, just so you know, the cops have been there before. And I'm like, okay, thank you. So the morning of the eviction, I so get there and I call and they're like, okay, where are you? I'm like, oh, I'm a few houses down. He came out. He's walking the dog in the yard. He came out and he looks down and he sees the, me and the, the two other people I'm like, okay. But we're far enough back where it's like, I, he, I already posted the notice the week before, right? Like, he knew we were coming. So, like, okay. So, I'm sitting there. The cops ask me where I am. They call back. Okay, six cops show up. I'm like, all right. And they're like, okay, so the tactical team's on standby. I'm like, excuse me? And they're like, yeah, because uh, in 2014, and I think this was this was 2017 when this happened. They're like, 2014 busted the windows out because he had a crossbow. And I'm like, oh, all right. Why is he there? Yeah, so this is the story is he, so that that whole event when, that was when they were taking the mom (laughs) and she was, so she was in a home from when they took her in 2014 and the litigation was about the ownership of the house. And so basically the judge ordered that the public guardian could seize the home because he refused to sell it or move out of it or buy the mom out because he had nothing. So it's like they were taking control of the house to be able to sell it to get proceeds to give the mom. Uh, does that make sense? Like, it, that, that's, yeah, what, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what they a, were doing. That, that sounds like a thing, yeah, yeah. So 
he's basically like squatting. It had already gone through everything. It was in this like rid of possession stage. And so I'm there and I'm sitting there in a tactical vest with my, you know, little baton. And here's six Ottawa police officers. And they know this guy. They, they know exactly who he is. And so I'm sitting there and I got to be part of a like tactical meeting of how this was all going to play out. Of We're going to go up to the front door. And he looks at me. He's like, you got a vest, right? I'm like, yep. And he's like, all right, you're going to do the talking. I'm like, okay. And so we go up and there's six of us or sorry, me and the six officers and like the chief, like lieutenant guy walks up with me and there's another guy behind us. And then meanwhile, the other talk on the sheriff's office, I, I have a liberal arts screen, four days of training. Like this is not, how did I end up in this position where I'm like, what, 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 what was your major <laughs> communication studies? So, even, oh, there you go. Well, yeah, I know. I got to use it that day. Um, but I, in fairness, I have a master's in linguistics, so it's a little bit more serious there. But anyway, uh, I was so I went up to the door and, and we're talking and his dog comes out and this dog had a head like bigger than a bowling ball. It was huge. <laughs> it, I think it was part like his ears were like messed up. So I think it was supposed to be a fighting dog. <laughs> it was like part Mastiff, part, I want to say Great Dane. Like I've never seen a dog that big. And I was so scared when he came at me. But it was the sweetest dog. The dog came at you? Well, like, he came up like a dog does, right? And he came up to all of us. But Oh, it didn't, like, charge no, no, at no, you. No, 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 But it was, like, it was super sweet. Like, I, I finally figured out what happened is I think this dog was made to be a fighting dog, but wasn't ex didn't have the temperament for it. So, like, he was the sweetest dog. And then we go into the place, um, and Antonio, one of the things no one tells you about these jobs, about the eviction job, it's not you see some hard things you hear some hard things but you smell the worst things the, the absolute worst oh. things. imagine you go into a place where he guy's been living uh, on propane he had propane for heat and okay. and, a, and, a, and a little stove and then okay. it's just it's just a hoarder's paradise just trash everywhere um, and this dog and like i don't think i saw it thankfully he let the dog out so there wasn't anything in there but like everything was just just disgusting every and like uh and then the cops just like once i give my authority under the courts of justice act when i give my authority as a sheriff's officer to the police it's theirs like they execute on behalf of me so like i can't really tell them like what to do and their way of dealing with it was giving the guy six hours to get all of his things off like outside of the house so that our guy could or not my guy but like the public guardians guy could board it up so yeah. he did, he got his things out in the yard. And then I remember a public guardian lawyer called me up and I'm just like, well, she's like, well, is he out of the property? I'm like, he's complying with their orders. They've given him time to get his things out and put it out in the yard so that he can come back and collect it. I'm like, I was like, I, I can't, he's like, well, can't you tell them to arrest him? I'm like, I can't tell them that. Like, I cannot tell them they are police attending and they are using their discretion, just like I use mine, in the execution of their duties. Like, it, it, I, I had to tell her, I was like, if you have a complaint with how they're doing things, talk to their superior officer. Like, that's not my job. Like, I, I don't have any authority over them other than asking them for assistance, right? So that whole thing scared the shit out of me. Took, sorry, can I cuss? I, I don't know if I can. Okay. Go, go ahead, sure. I'll put the little E okay. on this episode. Um, I didn't know if, I didn't know what was going to happen. It, it took us six hours. 
I still had to go serve all my notices that day. Like it was such a such a very difficult day. Um, and then what ended up happening at the end of it all was um, they kept complaining. Like he squatted again, of course. He squatted on the property on one of these random trucks or trailers or whatever, and they kept calling, telling the sheriff telling us we that I didn't do my job. And then it actually, it actually went all the way to Toronto. And I found out after the fact that they reviewed it and I never was interviewed or asked. And they're like, no, he did everything he was supposed to do. Like it's their job to remove someone you don't want on your property. You have already taken possession of the home. It's your property now, public guardian. Like it just, it came down to that. And it was just like, you know, I did everything I was trained to do. So, um, yeah, that... I want to come back. I want to come back to something you said. Sure. If you had to describe that smell, what kind of an adjective are we using here? Um, there is a very particular smell when you do evictions. Um, you've probably smelled part of it. Whenever you're around someone who smells like stale cigarettes, there's that. That imagine that like the worst bo you've ever smelled on the bus combined with that, and then yep. and then like some kind of excrement as well like i don't yep. animal or otherwise yep that's yep that's, yep yep uh, throw all of those together my, my wife did like landlord tenant stuff i had a landlord tenant file where we acted for the landlord and the tenant had like five cats and was not taking good care of them yep. and decided that the spare bedroom was just going to be a litter box like there was no actual box he just made like a swimming pool of kitty litter yeah in a bedroom yes so that, yeah, that is not uncommon. Uh, I've also done like one of my favorite ones I did was a Ottawa housing one where we were like getting into the place and they just drilled the lock open and where we got a call and like he opened it up and like he couldn't open the door because it was all just like trash bags like uh, uh, stacked above me. I'm six feet tall. They were h higher than me. Um, and we got a call saying, oh, she's paid. You don't need to do it. And the guy called back like we're in and we're gonna take a look because you gotta come see what's happening. And so like we walked in like there was a path through them that were like up to my thighs. It was it was really really bad. There was another one uh, I did on Eccles, which is not a good street, uh, full of rooming houses, a lot of problems. Um, where like the guy had like bottles of urine on the wall, and I as one does. I remember the guy with me. The, the maintenance guy was like, I don't even want to know what's in the fridge. I'm like, yeah, we're good. I'm leaving. We're clear. There's no one here. Uh, there was there was actually, uh, speaking of Eccles Street, when I was training, this is one of the most interesting experiences that ever happened to me on the job, is we, we go in, like, this place, the cops were, like, there waiting for us because um, they knew we were doing the eviction. And uh, was this is when I was training. And he's like, yeah, when they're here like this and we didn't give them a heads up, it's because they, they've been watching the place and they saw the notice go up. So, uh, and they were very helpful. All he did was knock and go sheriff's office. And then the cop just came in and just busted down the door and we're like, okay. And then, so we all step in and there's like four guys there. None of them are the tenants and one of them and they're smoking crack. And one of the guys blows the smoke right in my face. I'm like, okay. And then we get out of there and we leave. And on the way back, I'm just like, yeah, I think I'm a little high on, on contact crack, but it was just, <laughs> It was just like a like I felt lightheaded. I was like it wasn't the adrenaline, but I was just like I I, I saw someone smoke a crack pipe in that parking garage just off Dalhousie, like the city oh, yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, oh, you're gonna and see that. I was surprised. It doesn't have a smell. No, 
No, it does not. It's 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 a very uh, deceptive, and and like the smoke isn't really like thick. It's just like a vapor type of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, and he he blew it right at me. I don't think intentionally, but anyway, that was. Uh, those are the. Sh- now, now I have to ask. Sure. These are very interesting stories. I I'm very much enjoying. I tried this. doing these as comedy bits, and they don't work. Like they're too long. They're they're stories. Yeah. I mean, if you were like a Tom Segura, I feel like you oh, could just make this into like a big long story, and it would be great. Um, like you're, I, I'm I'm Facebook friends with you. I've seen you on Twitter. You're, can I say it? Like you're a, you're a lefty guy, at least by American standards. Yes. You 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 you're you're progressive. You you know I, I, how did the, how, I started progressive last year this time at the beginning of the primary, and I don't. I don't know where I am now, but it's it's left of there. But yeah, it, what, yeah. So so, how do you feel being like a like a cog in the state machine that's like forcibly taking some guy out of his home because he can't buy his mom's interest and the state needs it to pay for the care that they should be giving her anyway? Well, it's funny you say that because as I as I said earlier, I've thought a lot about this recently. That I'm so glad I'm not doing the job right now. Uh, one, my politics have changed a lot since I did that job. I think the last the last time I did that job was going to be four years ago now. Um, and I'm definitely more left than then. But, but I will say that one thing that was instilled with me by my, my um, trainer, who is very right-wing, he ran, it's Terry Kilray, he ran for mayor. Like, he, he's... I'm very familiar with Terry. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, Terry... Terry knew, like, I was left wing even with him then, but we got along because I didn't BS him and he didn't BS me. Like, he was very upfront. And I do believe what he said is true, is that um, at the end of the day, we have a judicial system. We have a system, legal system, right? And uh, whether it's the landlord-tenant board or the superior court, if we're doing a writ of possession. And um, everyone has their day in court. You are served with papers. You have a chance to respond and talk and tell a judge your side of things. If you choose not to exercise that, like, what else can you do? Like, like I know right now is different. Uh, would get evicted. And, like, a lot of times there was mental health problems or um, substance abuse problems. And it's just like, why is the system set up this way where... I understand there's different levels of government, but like the province is giving X amount of money to these people for, for support. And then they're expected uh, to take that and give it to Ottawa housing. It's like, we could, we could cut the evictions in this city in half. If there was some sort of agreement that the ODSP or whatever Ontario works, if their rent just came out of that and was paid like whatever you know what i mean like if there like it just becomes a provincial transfer system exactly exactly it it, it, i think it's asking a lot for people who are uh let's say lower income uh may not have the best money management uh skills also uh, like i said substance abuse mental health problems uh to ask them to also in addition to all of that manage their money and pay their rent and all these things like it's easy for us because we don't have any of those challenges but they do so why are we making this more complicated for them in in any event it's the province giving this person money to give to the city like why don't we just cut out that person and just be like hey just so you know out of your odsp 600 came out 
to go to your rent. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, it would it would have saved... eminently reasonable. It's never going to happen. I know. I know. But th- that was that was one thought while doing it. But, yeah, I mean, now I would have, given the, the times we find ourselves in now, I have a very hard time because, like, my mom owns properties in, in Sacramento. Like, I, I, grew, yep. I grew up, like, working, like, she's, but she's one of those people who, like, she, she, she has, I think, three homes now. That's her retirement plan. Is like she's built those up, and like when places like we did. So I understand landlords who put stuff into it and who work on things. The problem is those landlords are small potatoes compared to these, you know, numbered corporations. Timber Creek. Exactly, and not even just Timber Creek because they're an easy one to flog. But like uh, the numbered companies that like it's an investment portfolio and they own 20 prop. You know what I mean? Like. That's yeah. that's that's less sympathetic. I think that the thing that's hard is, um, I feel like all levels of government, especially now, I think they were better at it at the beginning, but especially now, have really dropped the ball on supporting not just tenants but also landlords um, in getting through this. Um, like when did like ford put in the commercial moratorium in like june and that was way too late like i don't know if you've been downtown lately but there was so many i closed up i closed up shop pretty much as of july and i started applying for that rent relief program and then i go to my boss i go to paul francis my old article Mm -hmm. principal i'm like can you just like tear up those checks i'm just gonna work from my basement if that's cool and he's super cool about it but you know it's like yeah by june you know, I've already been in kind of not working for three months. There was, uh, so, so I'm, I'm at a law firm on Laurier and I, I watched within the first month, uh, uh, the Ralph sports bar on Laurier completely ripped up, taken out. Uh, there, there's that little like a uh, quiche place that was on Metcalf and Laurier within the oh, like excellent or whatever yeah, for, it was the first yeah. month gone. It's like, and, and of course now let's, here we are. We're almost a year later. They're still empty. I, I, I don't at like okay. I understand as a commercial landlord, you're you're not making money because you you have tenants not paying you rent, but there's also nobody there. Like who's gonna who's moving into these places anytime soon? Like there's it's just I, I don't know if you get to write it off as a loss, but like it's I I it, ugh, we really need to do something about empty properties in this town like it's it's ridiculous how i i i think we're i think we're due for a correction i mean this is just me thinking thinking a couple decades ahead but you know now i think a lot of people not everybody not as many people as should be but a lot of people are realizing i can do whatever the fuck it is that we do the service economy mind work uh whatever you want to call it thinking and typing on a laptop. I can do that in my basement as well as I can do it in some cultish ritualistic office downtown where we have to have meetings and sit around a board table like it's a freaking seance or something like that. I mean, realistically, at a certain point, you know, do we need offices? I mean, I know a lot of government workers, including my wife, and there's kind of talk in the rumor mill saying hey you know this vpn thing is working out great what if we just get rid of all our buildings yeah maybe maybe it's just a matter of converting all that commercial space into apartment buildings however that happens fundamentally changes town if 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 all of the well let's not all but let's say 
60%, 70% of the federal public service went to working remotely. Like this would change Ottawa so much. Like you'd have traffic would be awesome. Tra yeah, traffic would be awesome. But like, I guarantee people would leave. Like, why would you live here if you could live in Bancroft? Yeah, like I was taking drives with Catherine and the boys early on just to get them to sleep in the car. And we'd go up to like Alfred and Lorignal yeah. and Hawkesbury. And it's like, you can buy a five bedroom house for 80 grand. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, exactly. And and like with uh, what's his face Elon Musk doing, I I don't like him for a lot of reasons, but I do like his satellite internet thing. I think that once that launches, if it stays around a hundred dollars a month, will change Canada. What is that? What is that? Starlink. It's uh, it's basically he's trying to do like a high speed broadband uh satellite internet thing. And it's like 120-ish dollars, I think, Canadian, to get uh, the monthly ser service, which is... And so that's better than, like, whatever the hell cable or well, like, DSL that we're doing? Let's say you live out, like, even my, my ex-mother-in-law lives in Mallorytown. And, like, okay. uh, but she lives in, like, the not the village part, but, like, out in the country part of Mallorytown. Her internet's garbage. Like, she can't stream anything. Like, she, she, can, she can, like, talk and she can do a little bit of FaceTime, but, like, that's it. Like, it, she can't... No Netflix... Like there's there's parts of a uh, huge parts of this country, but I would say the vast majority of this country you cannot stream anything in. But like imagine you could move out to like two hours from here near Algonquin Park, and you have a beautiful little country home, and you can stream whatever you want. You can do your hearings whatever you want because you got satellite internet that never loses connection, and you're set to go. Like it's it's I tell you, man, my dream right now is to get licenses as a paralegal, and then you, they have these like Instagram camper vans that people convert to go like travel around. And I just want to be like I think Tom Green has yes, one of those. Yeah, now. I want to be like that, like a Lincoln paralegal. And uh, <laughs> I, that that doesn't sound like a like a national film board sort of feature. Yeah. You know, they couldn't quite get Matthew McConaughey, no, yeah, but get, get the, the Lincoln paralegal with, in my Mercedes uh, converted used van, but like. That'd be... It used to belong to a plumber. Exactly. But that'd be great because then I could like come up here from like April to October and then like go for a month to California, visit my family, uh, then just drive to Mexico and find a place where they won't shoot me and practice law living on the beach uh, with my internet. This... That does sound like the dream. This is my retirement plan. This is once my kids are of age and have gone, uh, that is what I'm doing. Uh, How old are your kids? Uh, so my son is going to be six in two months, a little less than two months, and my daughter just turned eight. So I, wow. I have twelve years left, and then I can then I can go. So so, so mine turned two in uh, April. My twin boys. At what point does it get easier, <laughs> if ever? It doesn't get easier. It gets different. Like um, I, I will say, like the demands on your just when you think you have something figured out, it changes. Like you should know this already from the first two years because you saw this the first year of life, right? By the time you got zero to three months figured out, then you're in three to six. By the time you got yeah. that figured out, it's then they're walking. Um, two is really bad. Two two to four is is cha very challenging. Uh, they start snapping out a bit, a little bit at four. You, I don't know if you saw my comment today. I laughed hysterically. My my son was running around and he said why am i tired why am i tired and it was just like oh buddy you're finally starting to get some sort of self i don't understand I'm like why don't you go lay down no it's just like okay well you know i i try explaining to them like
approaching puberty in like three years, like three to four to five years. I don't know when it's coming because like Ooh. you never know, right? Because she's eight, so usually like the first signs of it around eleven. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm nervous for that. I'm I'm also part of me is like, when will they hate me and leave me alone? Like type of thing. But because but... I know we're supposed to treat boys and girls equally, at least you know notionally. Yeah. But but somehow daughter puberty just has this inherent like level of fear that yeah. for your son is probably not. I feel like boy puberty is just gross. Y- yes, yes. Uh, I, the the boy puberty part's gonna be not fun. Uh, the girl puberty part's also gonna be not fun. I'm I'm just nervous for like. I think the thing that that is challenging about being a parent is you want to make sure they don't suffer the same things you had to suffer. And, oh, 100%. And, like, uh, like I remember my my daughter, what she say? She said one day about, like, like she got teased one day and, like, really hurt her. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, some I, I, she she didn't understand that, like, not everyone's going to be your friend. Like, like that was a hard conversation to have. That, that pe- I still that, haven't figured that I, out. I'm fucking 34 years old. So just, like, telling them, like, there's some people that aren't nice. Some some kids, you know, and those people have kids and raise kids that aren't nice. But, like, just trying to tell her, like, you know, all you can do is try and protect yourself and and be good to the people who are good to you. And, like, I remember she said, she said it even last night. She's like, why do those people come to my birthday? They're not even my friends. I only have, like, four friends. I'm like, you're lucky you have four friends. Like, some people have no friends. Some people... Um, uh, and I told her, like, when by the time you get to be my age, like, you're lucky if you got, like, one person you can call. Like, it's just, like, you don't... Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's hard to... They're pushing and biting each other and kicking each other in yeah, the head. Yeah, they kick Yep, I got one of those the other day because I picked him up. I had the audacity to try and change his diaper. And I just got the rear kick right in the jewels. I thought I was going to vomit. Make sure that there's no competition. That's what they're doing. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, Something interesting you said. You said that, you know, you would go back to California if you were sort of a mobile paralegal, maybe go down to Mexico. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think... You know, for me, I've often flirted with the idea, like, I would take my, my law practice on the road and just head down to Florida mm-hmm. and be a snowbird. Mm-hmm. We have a place down there. I think it would be great. I, I love Florida. Oh, God. Ugh. You don't, you don't love Florida? I love Florida. I, I've been going down since I was two years old. You know, Highland Beach, Florida, right off of Boca Raton. I, I mean, that's my little slice of heaven. I think Canadians have a very different relationship with Florida than, like, okay, you got to understand. I grew up in California. Like I grew up in Sacramento. It's not the it's not on the beach. It's inland. Like but like, uh, and then I lived for, in Los Angeles for five years. So like, and I lived within. I would used to go jogging on the beach. Like L, like where I lived in L.A. Um, there's no appeal to going to Florida. 
when you're from California. Like, there, you want sun? We got sun. You, you want Dis- sure. you want Disneyland? We got Disneyland. You want Universal Studios? We got Universal Studios. All they got there is a bunch of alligators. Like we, you know, and and. But I don't go to the alligator they part. Got the, I'm not in the alligator part. the worst part. part of Florida, which is the people from Florida. Like that is, you know. The only people from Florida are way up north. We don't go to the Panhandle. Are you not? Oh, I like, know. That's, that's the, the worst thing, right? Part, but yeah. See, see, see. Florida, in many respects, is kind of like how I see Ottawa, in that. There's a lot of people who aren't from there mm-hmm. that just happen to be there, either That's by California you know work too. or ge- work geography, whatever. And then there's just a bunch of like rednecks. Yeah, F- Florida's Florida's such a weird, weird place. I've only been there once as a kid. So my as a kid, my stepbrother raised. So so all this all this shade you're throwing is based on like one shitty family oh, vacation. No, I'm sorry. No, the vacation was lovely. I had a great time. I, I, I was a kid. I got to go to Disney World. I, I went to the Everglades. I loved seeing the alligators. Uh, my issue with Florida is not so much uh, the, the trip I had as a child. It's that every crazy news story that comes out of the United States typically involves either Florida the, being the location or someone from Florida doing something. But you know why that is, right? I, I'm, I'm. You know how the sausage is made. You're a smart guy. What? No, why? You tell me. There is a law in Florida that every time a police process somebody for an indictable offense, they have to publish it in the newspaper of record. That's why. That's that's unique in all of the all of the United States, and so because of that, all this fucked up shit that would just fly under the radar in California, Texas, New York, Massachusetts, wherever gets published in Florida, and so it's really easy to go on like you know Associated Press. Oddly enough, and it's like you know Florida man tries to rob a bar with a flamingo or something ridiculous like that. That probably happens all over Philly. I had, yeah, well, yeah, probably. I had a I had a joke uh, that I did. It's been retired because it doesn't get many laughs. It's a uh, um, whereas you guys you remember like the beginning of Trump's presidency there was Hurricane Maria, I think it was. It was like sure. around that time there was there was a, a couple hurricanes. Weird that there was no hurricanes this year. Like I don't remember here. I think there was like maybe two, but like anyway. Uh, so they were canceled due to coronavirus. Exactly. Yeah, but there was uh, there was one in Texas, and then like the next week there was one in Florida. And when the one in Florida happened, there was uh, the sheriff's office in whatever county this was in had to do a, an update and a message because there was a Facebook event that had over like 3,000 people planning to attend where they were all going to go on the beach the day the hurricane was coming and they were going to shoot the hurricane. And uh, the, the, sheriff, the sheriff's... <laughs> that can't be real. No, it is. I'll send you the link. The sheriff's office had uh, actually had a diagram that showed someone shooting into the wind and how like if you did that it could theoretically come back around and kill you because of the force of the wind uh or somebody else it could hit somebody. but also the fact that it wouldn't stop the hurricane well yeah that I mean, yeah point that aside you know that point aside um but I, the, my joke was is like the thing is, like, you can tell Florida is a crazier place because, like, they didn't have to tell those idiots in Texas to not shoot the hurricane. Like, they knew that, and they're not exactly known for their cool tempers in Texas. So, like, uh, again, doesn't get a lot of laughs. The other, the other hurricane thing I had was uh, Trump, at, uh, and I cannot wait for his presidency to be done for a lot of reasons, but also because I re- like all of his meetings are going to be part of the public record. 
So we're all going to be able to look at the crazy things that went on in those meetings. Because, like, all we got are the leaks. And, like, stuff flies under the radar all the time. But one of the things he had was how he was, uh, he asked in a meeting if they could nuke a hurricane. Like, as it's approaching. Can they? In op- well, you know, when I first heard it, I was like, okay, you know, I would want to know the answer to that if I'm the president of the United States. We have all these nukes. We're not doing anything with them. Uh, and it, and it turns out it was actually studied by the U.S. military in 1953, I think it was. And, and what was the answer? Uh, no, you cannot. What what ends up happening if you explode a nuclear device in the middle of a hurricane? It does not displace it at all because it's an atmospheric thing that's happening. All that happens is all the radiated material just gets spread around a greater area. So you because, because now I mean this is the first time I've ever heard of this, but. I'm just thinking off the top of my head, if you cause this massive exothermic reaction right in the middle of this weather pattern, like mm-hmm. surely, I mean, the same, like, isn't that basically what El Nino was? It's just this pocket of hot air that's coming seasonally that's causing all of these storms and these winds, right? Yeah, I I, I mean, I'm going to trust the scientists from the 1950s. They they said, no, it will not work. You mean the ones that, like, put mercurochrome on their kids and did, like, Th- Tuskegee? Those guys, yes. Those yes. guys, yeah. yes. The ones who designed the weapons. Um, I mean, you know what? We're going to get to a point here where these storms are going to get so bad, we might want to try it out just to see if it actually does work that way. But then Trump can be vindicated. But um, he, he, he is basically the pioneer of geoengineering. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He'll be known as the nuke the hurricane guy. But, but uh, so here's but but so the come full before you started throwing shade that was completely undeserved on Florida, where I was going with <laughs> it was. I, I, I've often thought about, you know, how nice it would be to kind of be down there in the sun and the shade and, you know, doing my lawyer thing. But then I remember that, like, all my life is here, all my friends, family, social gatherings. And maybe that's less of, a, of an influence these days, obviously. But, mm-hmm. like, you're from California. Like, how, mm-hmm. did, you, how did you sort of uproot from the, the sun and the sand and come to Canada? How did that whole thing happen? Uh, la femme. Right, so how that 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 the way you say it? Um, no, so I met. Um, so I did my masters, as I said earlier, in linguistics, in forensic linguistics, actually, and uh, that was in the United Kingdom, in Wales, in Cardiff. At the time, it was oh four oh five. Um, I graduated in 05. There was no other program like it in the world, so I was... forensic ling. Hold the phone. Mm-hmm. You got to you got to tell me what forensic linguistics is. It's basically you take all the principles of linguistics and you apply them to the legal context. So uh, my little speech on it is the cool side of it is like uh, author identification, whether it's by speaker, by accent uh, or in writing. Uh, that's the CSI part of it that people are really, you know, uh, into it about. Um, so if somebody's really a big fan of like morphological prefixes, you could be like, he must be Yiddish. Right. Yes. Well, yes. And then, uh, the other side of it is, um, not so cool. So like this stuff, oh God, one of the things I, so my, my, I'll tell you what my PhD dissertation was supposed to be had I not dropped out was, so anyway, here, I'll do real quick. Cole's notes of the story is I did. The master's there, I met a girl from Brockville there, and the rest is history. So I moved here because it was easier for me to move to Canada than her to move to the States. Uh, We got married, we got divorced, we have two kids, and here I am. Um, But she also took the program. So 
I came here and I came here originally to do my doctorate at U of Ottawa. I technically can put PhD ABD at the end of my name because I did everything but the dissertation at the end. So I did the two smaller. So then wouldn't it be EBD? It's all, no, except, no, all, all, all but dissertation. Okay, because uh, you said everything but dissertation. I don't yeah, want to be a linguist over all, here or anything. All, all but dissertation. So I did one of the, so my paper, my big paper was going to be, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you the first paper I did, because I actually think this this is interesting. The more I get into law, the more I liked my first paper, even though it was hell to write. Um, was about the theoretical semantics and um, so do you know about modality uh, at a all? little bit so m modals are like words like uh, could should would th those yeah. kind of things uh, remember can, those from German class can th things like that but uh, the way we process them is different so there's let's see if I still remember this um, can words like can or could are like uh, epistemic in that they're kind of based in reality so yeah i can go to the store or like i can grab you some smokes right like the, like those are things that are based in reality right um but you use deontic which is things that are like more abstract which is like you should go to the store and not spend a lot of money right like i'm telling you to do something but it's not really based in like and what's that called? Diontic? Dion like Dionysus? Kind of, yeah. It's a D-E-O-N-T-I-C. Diontic. If I okay, so that's not it's not related to like Dionysus and the idea no. of like pure logic and no, 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 no. So it's more of a like, it's not based in like, uh, see, and, and if anyone's listening and I'm wrong on this, please don't correct me because it's been quite some time since I've done this. You know, Noam Chomsky is a regular yes. listener oh, of God. Who Cares If You Listen. He ripped me apart. Um... But he, uh, so anyway, it, it's, so they're very, very much categorized into different classes. Those two, like the, the modals into those two categories, except for ought. Ought is not one of those. Ought in linguistic um, circles has properties of both, where it's asking you to, you ought to do this. It, it could have some grounding in reality it could have some grounding in the theoretical so um i tried to take how ought was deconstructed and i tried to say that that was similar to how reasonable doubt or or the concept of being reasonable is 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 imposed on jurors in the legal sense because when you're asking like and you know this from working a lot as much and this and there's been forensic linguistics research into this as well um when you have someone going to the jury you don't want them to be themselves right you're not asking them to be themselves you're asking them to be a reasonable person right like whatever that is sure exactly and that's my point was that the legal system and not just in canada but us uk um we don't actually have a system where it's like a jury of your peers it's a jury of your peers people that couldn't get off of work well, that and also they you're giving them a very strict framework into which to interpret things, right? Like you have to stay in this lane. If you stay out of this lane, if you stray out of it, it's a mistrial. Uh, but you have to use this set of facts. It doesn't matter what you know. It's what we present to you. Um, and that's counterintuitive to human behavior, right? So I was trying to say that when you ask someone to assume this reasonable person, uh, you're you're doing the same thing as ought 
you're taking the real world and their experiences, but you're filtering them with the diontic and the things that they that they philosophically should also be that aren't necessarily part of who they are. So that so was ought in a way is kind of creating this ontological framework exactly. under which somebody is existing in order to come to the decision that they themselves might not otherwise make if they have their biases and whatever. Exactly. So so ought I was basically saying that the way we've deconstructed ought could also be used to say how we didn't deconstruct the logical process as a reasonable person. It got very much into the weeds of legal philosophy. Okay. <clears throat> so what so so Sorry. just before the, our, our internet collapsed over there cuz Elon Musk was getting wise to us. I mean, yeah, he um, yeah, got got mad. So you were saying we were talking about ought and we were talking about legal something about legal philosophers and legal theories. Right. So so I because I was doing a linguistics doctorate, uh, but very much what the research I was doing was multidisciplinary, um, I had to sell a lot of like what the legal concepts were to them, and it was frustrating. And anyway, I gave up. The, the, it got too difficult. Just, just not, not the, the actual paper, but just uh, I finished that paper. The other one I did was on immigration documents, um, which was a... Uh, just to move away from the other paper was um, what did she say? It was it was a professor from Washington State who did a paper on um, basically she was saying how and you would know this too from working in law that language in itself is a barrier in immigration uh, law in immigration forms. She was basically saying how um, do you, and do you need to work analyzed, in the legal field to know that? No, well. <laughs> She she was analyzing from pre 9/11 U.S. documents to post 9/11 U.S. documents, and how they changed and became more complicated uh, language-wise. Like you needed a certain level of education to interpret them properly. The sentence structure was like way above what a normal person would be able to interpret. So there it was it was interesting because in, in so beautiful her, Florida, you know that most uh, that beacon of light yes. and hope for everybody, I believe. There was a, there's a law that says that all government documents have to pass the what is it called the fleshing readability test. I know mm -hmm. Google Docs will mm -hmm. tell me what my score is for that, and it's like how many syllables you have in a sentence and how many sentences yes. you have in a paragraph. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and 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 so so what I so her, her and the other part of her theory was that because. Uh, she believed, and I don't necessarily disagree with her, that the U.S., especially post 9/11, was very xenophobic and very closed off to the rest of the world. Um, she believed that uh, that that policy of anti-immigrant that was kind of I, I, I know it wasn't as strong as Trump did it, but like still pretty strong. Um, like post 9/11, was kind of like in the policy like you could see it in the documents was her thing so my my whole theory was well if that's the case then a country that is more open immigration wise should have a simpler way of interpret like it should have a, 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 a less that, complicated did that pan structure. out in the research so my comparison was with canada and it was yes it was less complicated but not to the degree that i thought it would be uh, I thought it would be way simpler. It was not. It was it was like marginally different. Um, I'd also be curious to see if the French 
side would be as accessible as the English side. Yes. I was just doing English, and my doctorate was going to be analyzing Canada, U.S., Australia, like every English-speaking country to see how they were. Um, but then I got, yeah, there was a lot of problems, not with the department, but with the administration. So they just kept wanting, like, it, I, I lost it with them finally when they were like, you need to get a, a supervisor who knows, like the, the department told me, you need to get a supervisor who knows uh, your field. Um, there's two, at the time, there were two other people in Canada working in that field. One was at U of T, a professor, who was very nice and said, I'm sorry, I just can't do it. I don't have the time. I'm like, okay. And then the other one was uh, a professor at Simon Fraser, who I was like, I asked her and she's like, yeah, she, she's like, no problem. I would love to. So I'm like, okay. And then like we, I went out to Vancouver on my own dime to go meet her. I went to a conference there at Simon Fraser, got to meet all these amazing, huge names in uh, the field. And then, like, by the time I got started again, uh, they're like, yeah, you need to find someone who's tenured. I'm like, like, she's adjunct. I'm like, excuse me? Like, you guys never told me this was a requirement when you said go find somebody. And now you're telling me they have to be tenured? So I wrote this long letter, like, can you tell me, like, can it be someone who was tenured but is now retired? Does it have to be in North America? Like, what are all these rules that you had a pro like? I need to know before I spend time to go find somebody. They never answered me. So I'm just like, fuck this. Like, I, I don't I don't need the stress of my life anymore. Like, I, I would love to have finished it. But, like, at the end of the day, it's like, what was I doing the doctor for? To be a professor at a college? Like, there's no there's no jobs yeah. there. I, 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 I applied for my Ph.D. in musicology. I mean, I did my master's in music before I went to law school. And I remember distinctly like my kind of come to Jesus moment was like the November before I started law school. I went to a conference in Carrollton, Georgia, a humanities conference just on the border with Alabama, about an hour and a half outside mm, of Atlanta. God's country. Honestly, I loved it. Everyone there was so nice. They were very friendly to me. Like, I don't know, maybe this is just my, my privilege speaking, but uh, you know, the, Deep South was was lovely. I did not. I have nothing yeah. bad to say about the state of Georgia, but while I was there, I talked to these other academics, and I mean, it was just you know, the guy from Princeton asked me why I didn't have a Canadian accent, and I'm like, really? You're you're like close to the border. I feel I feel like that's a really stupid question to ask, but but. Meanwhile, he's like, hey, what you got next? And I, expect, here, right? I told him, I'm like, well, you're from New Jersey. Like, shouldn't you sound like Carl from Aqua Teen Hunger Force? You know? He's like, what's that? Yeah, exactly. But, 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 but like my moment that I really realized that like academia, like there was a, there was a woman in my field who just told me about how she just got on the tenure track at like rural Nevada state and mm -hmm. uh, not Nevada, rural Utah state. And she was like, you know, I'm finally on a tenure track. This is my dream job. I found it. I was like doing postdocs and fellowships for like eight years and I finally made it. And I'm like, yeah, that, that, you know, it wouldn't have been my, well, I mean, it wasn't like my first choice, but like I applied to like 80 places and I got 79 rejections. And then I went to this place and she's like, yeah, I mean, there's no symphony there and there's no museum. And the only thing to do is watch the high school football team and it's a dry county. Uh, but, you know, I mean, you know, it's tenure. And, and I'm like, really? Is yeah. this what I is this what I'm going to do? I'm going to be like an academic nomad, just kind of wandering the plains, you know, looking yeah. looking for that fertile land of like the one job in my field. It's it's uh, 
It's fascinating. And, and now, I, and now I don't even know. that I... one job is going to go away. It's only like adjuncts are, are sessionals or whatever you call them are, are the bread and butter for universities. And now with online learning, yeah. like what's it going to take to have, you know, your professor emeritus record a lecture and then just use it ad infinitum yeah. for 20 years? Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of what's happening with with uh, like as as I said it in the earlier part of the show. Like I, so I've just been finishing my paralegal thing at Algonquin College. It was not a, uh, it was supposed to be in person. Then obviously we switched to online, which was great for me because I didn't want to do it in person. Um, but yeah, it's you're sitting there, you watch people do lectures on their reading powerpoints. Everyone's cameras off, and you're just sitting there. Like there's so many times I'm just like, okay, like. I had it playing on a laptop here, and meanwhile, I'm working from home on these ones, listening to a legal accounting lecture. It's like, what, what are we doing here? Like, this is, I, I, there's something about human interaction in a classroom that you that is important, I think. But there's so much, like you know, from working in the field or even working at any kind of office job that you really don't need to be there for. That that. I really hope that this period of our history really drives home the fact of it could have been in an email. It won't. Right? It won't. Like, it, I, I know. It won't. I, I know. And that's the most depressing I know. part. It, I know lawyers right now in the middle of a lockdown, in the middle of a pandemic, who have access to email, fax, phone, whatever. They go into their physical brick-and-mortar office and they make their clerks go in and they make the staff go in because, and they make the clients go in because, well, we're essential and don't worry, I, you know, sprayed some Purell on the table. Yeah. Meanwhile, well, I think maybe by the time our generation is more like 10 years from now, maybe maybe it'll change. I don't know. I, I know what I want and I know it's it's too... Do my little van of broken dreams driving across the uh, the country. I'll be the littlest hobo of paralegals. I mean, my dream van um, is the Volkswagen Buzz. Have you seen this? Yeah, yes, that's like yes. I've been I've been circling that. I'm waiting for it to actually like it's going to be vaporware. I don't think it's ever going to actually come out. But I keep looking at it and I'm like, that's the dream. Just put my sup on Someday. top and then just put a little office in there and just mm -hmm. hit you know haul ass on the highway. Yeah. See you, kids. That's that'll be back in a few yep, months. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> but uh, you know, that's uh, that. But yeah, I, I I get my outlet now from stand up. That's where I get my screaming in front of. Uh, we we do stand up comedy and stand up paddleboarding. That is that is like, those yes, are two exactly. hobbies we share in common. So you have to be more specific. You were talking about comedy. Comedy. How how yes, did you comedy. get how did you get into stand up? We've done an hour. We haven't even talked about your 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 shtick. Uh, my comedy stuff. Um, so as you know, and I've alluded to, I went through a divorce uh, five years ago. There was also a lot of other very difficult things that happened around that time, um, where I was basically left with, well, you're only on this planet for however many years you're on this planet, right? So why not try the things you wanted to do? And um, my first time on stage was March 9th, the day the day before my son's birthday, March 9th, 2016, and um, at Yuck Yucks. And I remember it. I remember Don Kelly was hosting. He hosted my first um, night, too. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. My mother had I remember him. I told him that. I remember I told him that I, he hosted my first time, and he came up, put his shoulder on, put his hand on my shoulder, and was like, 
do you know how many people tell me that? I'm like, yeah, okay, Don, I got it. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, so I started, I remember I was like, half the courthouse came. It was like, I was super nervous. Uh, and I was like, maybe like two minutes in, had to pull out my phone and start reading. Um, and then I think I did my second time in May and then I found out there was like the open mics around the different places and you did it before I did. You did it and then you stopped doing I it, I did right? it. So, like, so yeah, I did it in law school. My friend Mike Curry used to host uh, stand-up rooms in PEI, that bustling mm -hmm. comedy, you know, all the Anna Green yes. Gable jokes. Um, mm -hmm. he, he organized like these charity comedy shows at law school. So I probably would have started 2012. I did the first one, and then Tommy okay. Tommy Fitz saw me, and he was like, you know, you should try doing Yuck Yucks or Absolute. And I, I did a couple more of them at law school, and then finally I got the nerve just, like, I guess it would have been 2013 or 2014. Would have been the first time I did Absolute, and then I did a couple of rooms after that. Ari, Ari Black has, you know, invited me out mm -hmm. to his. I did that one a whole bunch. And then I did it really gangbusters until about halfway through articling and then it was just between when Catherine moved in and then also dealing and this is my first serious relationship and she's moved in and i'm dealing with uh you know all of the crap out of my first big boy job and i just you know i just couldn't do it anymore i couldn't i couldn't i couldn't get out every night and hustle and now i mean i don't even know how you do it with kids like with, with my, i i had to organize like it was a fucking production just to get out to do one yeah. show in january and right now i'm like i don't know when's the next time i'm gonna do that well it's a funny thing when you don't have your family for a week <laughs> every other week you have a lot of free time so um yeah i know it was about scheduling so like um i at my peak of like hustling and doing the different rooms, I would do, I would do shows every any night I didn't have the kids, um, and I was doing them like like ten shows, twelve, fifteen shows a month. Um, wow! But like, that, but that would be like me hitting every single mic and everything like that. Um, obviously, I took some time off for the paralegal thing when yeah. that happened. Um, I, I I tried to keep it to just the clubs to keep my keep my legs, but even then, I noticed it kind of like. It, it, it impacted it. And it's funny too, cause I left, I like, well left, but like I took my break was September, 2019. And like, that was when I had like the most money I was ever paid for comedy. Like that you got paid? Like from August to September. Yeah. I did, uh, I did, um, opening spots in, at the comedy nest in Montreal. What? I got, I got, uh, yeah, I did with Joey Elias and I um, love Joey Elias. Shut the front door. He's great. Yeah, I, I he wasn't even the headliner. He should have been, but like he was just the nicest guy too. And he was so nice like with my comedy and everything. So I did uh that was August 2019 and then September I did like uh, I think I did a paid show at Yucks. Also did they had a satellite room here in Barhaven that I actually got yeah, paid they, to host they, it. And, that was a Greenfield the Jolly I used to do that. No, 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 they had one at Jolly oh, Tax Jolly Fair, Taxpayer, which is okay. um, and I think I know the one, yeah. Long just Longfield or It used to be it, it used to be the um, Johnny Canucks. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. On on Woodruff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I did that one. It was great. I had a nice uh, like little payday on that those those gigs, and then I like stopped. And so now like everything was supposed to be done with this program in the summer. It didn't because of COVID. So now I finished, and then like literally I had my final on Saturday, my evidence final, and then uh, 
then they're like announced, yeah, we're going to go into lockdown again Christmas Eve. And then it's like, okay, fuck it. Monday I was out. Tuesday I was out. Wednesday I was out. Pretty much when, when everything opens again, I'm going to be back out pushing it again because um, I think I have – I think I could be a middle. Like a middle is like 20 minutes. Um, and I think like that's my next goal because I know I'm an opener. I know I can do an opener at a club. I've done openers at clubs. I've done openers on clubs on weekends in September of this last year. Um, well, remember we were open for like a couple months. I did the openers at Absolute and they went really well. Um, so I feel like I could do it again. Um, yeah, we'll see. And also I just love doing it. Like I, I, I like writing. I like the writing, the jokes, like, uh, it was really funny too. Cause Monday I started with like, I was at Swizzles and I did like 10 minutes of all new material and and then I whittled it down on Tuesday. I was at Yuck Yucks. And then I was at Yuck Yucks again on Wednesday. And I whittled it down again. So, like, tw- 10 minutes turned into three minutes of, like, actually the good yeah. stuff from those That's 10 a real. I've always so, found it to be a really interesting process to just get the fat out and really kind of distill what yeah. is it that's actually funny about this bit. And, and, and it's, sometimes it's the things that you don't expect – uh, we'll get the bigger pops. So, like, I'll 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 tell you one of my new jokes was, uh, are you familiar with with video games at yeah, all? Do you, a little bit. The, the I got gaming some Fortnite, games? yeah. So, like, so one of the ga- the big games that came out this holiday season was Cyberpunk 2077. Part of it, yes. Which is which which is uh, it's become a bit of a joke more since I wrote the joke. But uh, I was saying how it was a big game, um, and you may know it because Keanu Reeves was in it. Uh, such, uh, yeah, he's like one of the main characters in it. So, so I was like, you know, uh, Keanu Reeves, like star of such famous films as Johnny Mnemonic, The Lake House, uh, name some other shitty John, uh, movies. I said The Matrix 2 and 3 only. Um, but then I said that it's not the first time that a big name has ever appeared in a uh, video game. So if you're not aware about this, uh, back in 1992... At the height of Home Improvement's fame, Tim Allen actually appeared in the Sega Genesis classic Streets of Rage 2, where he would come up and he was thug number four, and then when you would hit him, he would uh, he would go, huh? and like for some reason, just me doing the Tim Allen sound on stage gets a huge laugh. That's such a setup huge for like laugh. a goofy sound effect. For, I I know I know I and I wrote the joke just for me because I wanted to do that. And for some reason, people love it. So I'm like, fuck it. Okay. I, if I'm going to do it, the Tim Allen, uh, like, sure. He, he has why that not? new but, show that, like, my friends in Florida are watching that's, like, Modern Family for Trumpers or something like that. For, for Trumpers, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know. I don't follow his new stuff. But, yeah, I, I, I love – I just like I like finding out what works, finding new stuff um, with, with Trevor's show – like we write stuff about the news and like I wrote a whole thing on the uh, Senate elections in Georgia, like I, I like three pages on it. I'm just like, like, like there's no, there's no really jokes in here that I can ever use on stage again. Cause it's about this day and this moment and this time, but it's fun. Like doing, it's like a good exercise to like, Hey man, you can be like the next like Mike Bullard. You just start doing a monologue every night. I mean, get, get all that current event stuff going. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what we're doing with Trevor. Exactly. It's just like, I mean, I think there's a talent yeah. in that, too. Being able to produce stuff that's so ephemeral, like it's here today, gone tomorrow. 
doesn't all have to stand the test of time and you know probably as well as I do you've been to a lot more rooms than I have at this point like it really sucks when you have comedy friends and maybe they have a good six minutes maybe it's really funny but you've heard it like 7,000 times it's not funny anymore yes. it just can't be it yes. can't be I, I, I know I, I got to so like that year when I was taking off for the program I didn't really write any new stuff because I was busy so I was just keeping my legs, and I was doing the clubs, and the clubs, it's always new audiences, right? So they liked my set because it's my it was my competition set from the year before, so all my best stuff. And they loved it. But then when everything reopened in July and August, the only people really going to shows were other comics. And they've heard me do that a million yeah. times. So, so then I'm doing it at, like the competition – in which I've advanced past the first round every year now for three years, except for this one, uh, I ate shit because they're all just sitting there staring blank face at me because they heard it all before. So it's like, okay, well, you know, like that's, you know, I'll just wait till COVID is done for me to actually bring out my old tested stuff. It again, might be a while. Right? Yeah, I know. Yeah, it'll be, I'd say October, maybe, if we're lucky. But yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then, yeah. I don't know, maybe, yeah, getting back on stage would be nice, just to kind of make it feel like shit's normal again. Well, it's it's different, too, because, like, you're in front, and there's, like, there's plexiglass in front of you. So, like, you're, it's like you're in a hockey box. Like, you can't, can't really see people. Like, you can only see, like, the front row because of the glare. Well, wasn't that always like, the case with the pot lights? Kind of, yeah. And absolutely, you can see people pretty well, but... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you've been up there, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm looking forward to getting back up there. Whenever have you that have you taken is. it? Like, have you gone down to the states? Like, I mean, you got family in California. You ever gone to the Comedy Nest? Uh, I've done, I've done um, a couple shows in Sacramento when I was back there, and I did a bar, <laughs> so. It was funny. It was it was t very much the two different sides of the comedy scene. So first I went to like um, very artsy kind of bar place and it was very much um, very hipster okay. and they had no idea who I was. I didn't really talk to any of them and they were like, they laughed kind of, but it was all comics and artsy people and like, they, they wanted to laugh. Like, my sister was there, and she brought some friends, and they laughed. But, like, they were just like, okay. They were more, like, if you've been around comics enough, you know that they size you up. Like, they, they want to see, like, okay, what's this guy got type of yep. thing. And I felt I felt that the whole time. So I'm just like, okay, uh, you know, sure. And I was doing these sets to keep fresh for when I got back because then I was in the competition again. So I was like, okay. So I was like, I don't really care if you guys don't like me or not. I'm just trying to make sure my timing's good and everything like that. Uh, but then I did another show in uh, – it's a suburb of Sacramento called Rancho Cordoba, which is very much Trump country. Um, and which is funny with a my, really the, Spanish name. I know. Right? Yeah, I know. Well, they call it Rancho Cordoba. Um, but they, uh, <laughs> so I'm doing, the, uh, I'm doing the show, and the comics tell me, they're like, hey – like, just so you know, it's a pretty, like, you know, right-wing kind of bar. I'm like, all right, well, like, the majority of the bar was, like, the regulars and then a ch huge chunk of my family. So I'm like, I'm just going to do my, my bit. And, and they liked it. Like, they, the, the thing is, like, it, it just takes a few people to laugh 
And a laughter other than COVID is the most infectious thing that you can have. Like it, it spreads. So like uh, the last show I did was on the 23rd. And like one thing that I do like about Absolute that Yuck Yucks needs to do better is Absolute seats people in the front row. Because if you're in the front row, you're not looking around to see if other people are laughing. You're just reacting to the comic right in front of you. Um, and if the people in the front are laughing, everyone else starts laughing. So when Yuck Yucks doesn't do that and lets everyone hide in the darkness, uh, it's the shows are worse. And absolute, they know that formula. So at the December 23rd show, we had this awesome two couples right in front, and they were game for anything. They were laughing at anything. And it made everyone else laugh. And it was great. Fucking and so, like, shitless to sit in the front row. Like, God love them, but like, there's not a chance oh, in yeah. hell I'm doing that. I mean, just on the odd chance it, you have something, I, I'm not trusting yeah. a piece of plastic with my life. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. That's that's understandable. But it was uh, it was good. Anyway, that was my that's my little comedy uh, aside. I feel like you've covered all aspects of my life. My failed academic career. My legal uh, experience, and then my comedy. I mean, I mean, in, in many respects, I feel like we've kind of bumbled through the exact same spheres of life. So, like, this was very yeah at different stages. This, yeah, this is very reflexive. Yeah, you know, I mean, we we have many mm -hmm. similarities. I thought you were Italian for like the first four years. You, you never corrected me. I kept coming in, I and I'm like, I'm like not that. even that Italian. I'm only half, but I'm like, hey, paisan, and you didn't even like. You 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 you, well, you, seem, you seem so you seem so happy. I didn't want to I didn't want to ruin that for you. Um, like it was a lot. No, well it's it, in my, well it's not that I'm not Italian. It's just like both both my parents are from Mexico. Via Italy, like at least. Well, on my dad's side, yes. <laughs> on my dad's side, is Sicilian. So uh, we had we had uh, uh, one of my relatives did a DNA test. So I found out through my dad's side, it's Sicilian and uh, very indigenous as well, like northern Mexico indigenous. Um, so you're basically a spaghetti my, western. Kind of, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And then my mom's side is like very uh, not as indigenous, but more uh, northern Spanish, as well as for some reason, like eastern Cossack or like like my mom's side is very fair. And I, we thought it was the Spanish, but then it turns out there's like Eastern European in her lineage, which also it's like, I don't know. So we, we got, I mean, all Latin Americans tend to be a mix of yep. a lot of different things. So, so, so fair enough. We're, we're, we can both lay claim to being poser Italians. I mean, I don't speak a lick of the goddamn sure. language. I love pizza. So do I. Pizza, so pizza. Go. It's authentic yeah. as it gets. <laughs> oh, yes. well, yeah. look, I mean, I'm very mindful of the fact that it's been close to two hours that I've uh, I've taken sure. up out of your evening. I've I've had a blast. I could probably keep no, it's fine. I could probably keep talking if you wanted to, like, name names and tell sordid stories about the court. But I don't think you want to do that on a podcast. Oh, oh it's so well, yeah. We'll post see. post pandemic, we'll, come you know, sit around a fire, get good and drunk. And I want to I want to I want to hear all these sordid tales because I feel like you've got some I, good stuff. If, if we're in the right sort of sphere, you know. Yes. Not on the record. On the record. <laughs> What's going to happen? <laughs> Come on, man. Hey, all it takes is one person who I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to corrupt a budding paralegal at the at the beginning of his career, I suppose. So, yeah, I mean, you want to mm. be, you, you want to continue to be ethical until you've kind of got your sea legs underneath you. And then. Uh, I, I want. I want to win that CCLA paralegal award so bad. Is there so a paralegal bad. award? I want, I, 
They just announced it. From now on, there's going to be a paralegal of the year award, and I'm uh, my Paula my, Callahan my is little... gunning for it. You better you better watch. Oh, yourself. I know she is. I know she is, and and I'm gonna and I'm gonna beat her. Right. Okay. Um, I'm gonna Fighting beat her. Words. I'm I'm putting I'm putting it out I'm, there. I'm, I'm gonna go her on uh, this episode. We're Facebook friends. Oh, she'll she know. Oh, she's my Facebook amazing. friend too. She was also she was also uh, one of my teachers this that's last year. But no, she's a. Uh, She's great. I'm going to, but that's my goal for myself: is in the next five years to win that. So, um, and also to be a middle in the comedy world. <laughs> that sounds so, so dirty. <laughs> yeah, well, a middle for for un uncorrupted minds like uh, Antonio's a middle. So typically, a comedy act has a, a, a an MC a sh uh, who runs the show, an opener sometimes has an opener who does usually five to eight to ten minutes. Um, and then you have a middle who does twenty to thirty. Thank minutes. you for thank you for you clearing have, that up. So it's not your dream being you have spit your, roasted, right? Exactly. And then your feature does like forty-five to an hour. So what's so it's usually like an hour so and a half, that two hour the show. So is that dream? Like, what's the end goal? Like, like what? Where do you where do you see yourself? Oh, for comedy, yeah. or for comedy, I would love to be a touring headliner. That I mean, if I could be a touring headliner and do all remote paralegal work when I'm not doing my comedy stuff at night that's the dream because then i could be earning crazy amounts of money well i won't say crazy but like you're getting paid to do a weekend at a club you get paid and then you're doing paralegal work during the day it's like you know like i can make a good chunk of change and, i remember i remember I mike curry asking me just before i started articling he's like hypothetically like let's say like howard gives you the call and he wants you to be on the Yuck Yucks roster and you're gonna go and do Yuck Yucks Brantford and Yuck Yucks Toronto and Yuck Yucks Kingston and Yuck Yucks Shikutami and you're gonna go and do the uh -huh. circuit and make like thirty thousand dollars a year living out of your car. Like would you fucking do it? And I was like well, Yeah. No, I probably if that was available to me, I think I'd fucking do that. If I didn't have the kids yeah. yes. This I was pre kids when because I said I, it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because because I have the kids that's where the paralegal thing comes in. Where you're being like, a responsible need... adult. You have a daytime job. You're you're putting a yeah. roof over the head. I got you. Well, I like especially now that I'm divorced. Like, it would be perfect. It's like, hey, I'm free these 26 weeks out of the year to tour. As long as you get me back in Ottawa by the time I get my kids back on the Monday, then great. I'll come do your week. You know what I mean? Like, I could do the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday in freaking Winnipeg. Like, as long as I'm back here you know, Sunday or Monday, like, that's fine. Like I, I, and then I could still work potentially from the hotel room doing paralegal stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you could probably make that work. Yeah. And I don't want to, I don't want to prick the balloon. I would love to do that. I would just, I would just <laughs> give up the paralegal shit if I could make that work. If I could somehow, you know, eke out yeah. just enough out of that. Yeah, see, I don't want to eke out just enough. I got these van dreams, Antonio. I told you, they call, they don't, they're not cheap. Well, you need to get big. Band. You need to do like stadiums. You need to you need to dream impossibly yeah. large. I've I would love I, to. I would love. I've to often told do people that. about I'm, my California friend Lorenzo, the stand up, and like they're like, "What's his comedy like?" And I'm like, basically, imagine Gabriel Iglesias after the gastro, and that's. Jesus Christ! <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's do so you kind. like Gabriel Iglesias? So I don't feel like your stand ups overlap not, not a lot. Really. I took no, my mom not to really. see him when he was at TD Place. Yeah, yeah, he, that's, he, he, that's very mom-friendly. He comic. brought it. He brought it. Yeah, 
I like I like Segura a lot. You mentioned Tom, Tom Segura. Segura yeah. Tom Segura is great. He's he's he's, he's brilliant. Um, I like um, Mulaney is probably my favorite uh, comic. John Mulaney. He's great. Um, he he he's one of the best writers in comedy. I I love him. He's in rehab um, now. I, apparently. Yeah, I know. I know. That's very sad. Uh, I think Bill Burr is also he's my all-time uh, favorite. Absolutely. He he's he's really good. I think he's had a very negative effect on comedy though, just because so many people try and be and him, and then they just and end up being anyone... angry assholes. The point is that he contains it's, it. Yeah. Well, and also like he's his own. Like that's him. Like you can't that. Like there was a podcast I was listening to one time, and they were talking about um, Drew Carey. And and that like Drew Carey went to like some kind of fortune teller, but this is before he got famous. And they told him like one of your greatest strength is you know exactly how everyone sees you. And I really think that that is the key to comedy is if you know going up on stage because it's all about first impressions. You either know exactly what your first impression is that you give off and you play into that and you make it something. Or you manufacture that first impression to be what you want, and and I think Bill Burr, he knows exactly who he is, and and that confidence of I am who I am, and carries through in everything he does. And uh, I don't know, I, I for the first few years I struggled a lot with that of trying to figure out how people saw me when I was on stage, and then I just figured I could just make it up. And it just worked it better. Can you way. make it up though? Um, I feel like if it's gonna be really good, you have to be honest. I mean, this came up with it, it this has came it, up with on my podcast has, with a poet where I was she was saying you don't want to be yeah. clever, you want to be honest when you're doing your art. It, it's it's bits and pieces are honest. Um, so like I play up the fact that I like don't like my kids. Like that's that's not honest. I love my kids. Do they annoy the shit out of me sometimes? Sure. Like I play up those feelings of like i'm done like i'm done as a parent like that kind of stuff like I, pl I play into certain aspects of my personality um on stage and that kind of i don't know maybe that's what bird does maybe i'm not maybe like i hear you know, what you're saying he it's just, like it's not autobiographical right you you take you take the parts of yourself that work and, and on stage and you make them funnier or you play into the things that are funny about it and that that's what you are. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I mean, I'm only, I'm only five years in and really this last year, I don't think counts. So like, let's say four years in and like, I'm still figuring things out. Like I'm still learning stuff about myself as a comedian on stage. I, I find that I'm more comfortable riffing like off the cuff than I was uh, even two years ago, which comes with experience. But that kind of shit, like if you know how to riff with the crowd and like build stuff with the crowd and do things like that, that's a skill that like you can you can just like there was a great thing I heard about Trump that I completely agree with uh, where they were saying that he's a road comic in that like he he gets up there and he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, this guy I was talking to this guy I was doing this. So, like he gets a crowd whipped up. I, and I think he's a genuinely funny person, uh, but like he he's able to play into those things that are like like a road comic does like any town you put trump in just like any town you put a road comic in you can be like yeah you know this guy over here i was talking to this guy oh yeah he's a fatty like you know like things like that like he he just knows how to do that and i think that's what good road comic good working comics do as well so 
if you know he has nothing else to do after he leaves office in 48 hours, he can probably do a pretty good job as a road so, cop. So we, so we, so that's we, a so I want to end this podcast on you giving sure. unequivocal praise of Donald J. Trump. There you go. He's a, he, he is literally that election, or not the election, the debate. Which one was it? It was the one where he was talking over Biden, the first one, I think it was. They only did two. That first one that he did, I was laughing so hard every time he talked because it was so funny and like the points he was trying to make. But he also made jokes too. And I was like, dude's a funny guy. Like, I, I don't care what you say about him. I think he's a monster, but dude's a funny guy. Like, that's. And that's endearing to people. Like I try, I try. Like I love Bernie Sanders. I'm a big lefty person, but I also understand what attracts people. And to Bernie Trump. Sanders like, is like the anti-Trump. Like he reminds me of every lefty yes. I knew who would like want to spend his Friday night handing out pamphlets in the campus quad. He drives a Honda Fit for the love of God. Like he drives a he drives an economical car. And that's my Bernie Sanders impression. It sounds like Larry David, but I he mean, drives like they're apparently like four yeah, cousins or something. They're very similar. Yeah. But he, uh, but like I, I, it's one thing I understand about Trump, and the thing I tried to explain to some of my relatives who are very much of the like Hillary Clinton side of the Democratic Party, which I can't stand, is the like you have to understand for some people they just want to be entertained, and like he's entertaining. Like you can't say he's not entertaining. You you will say he's horrible and he says terrible things. Yes, but he's entertaining, and that's what some people love that about him. And if you you have let's just say Hillary for example like she's not engaging she's not entertaining in any sort of way like it was uh, it's such a mismatch between the two I'm so pissed we did not get to see Bernie and him going against each other because I think that would have been fascinating to watch but oh, I think it was uh, no, John Stewart who described it as basically like every morning commute on the sub you know the subway yeah in New York City is basically two old guys like that yeah. Pretty, like yeah, a loud mouth from yeah. Queens and like this old Jewish guy like debating politics <laughs> yeah. in like the most polemical fashion possible. Pretty much. That would have been cool to see though. But yeah, I uh yes, yeah, so I will say that about Trump. I do think he's funny. I do think he's beautiful. Funny. Lorenzo, thank you thank so you. much for doing this with me. I've had a blast. Thank you. And, thank you for uh, listening. Maybe we'll uh we'll see each other again if the world ever goes back to normal. I hope so. It's nice Thanks, seeing you. Buddy. You take care. All my best to the family. Cheers. I'll see you around. Cheers. Bye. And just like that, another episode is in the can. Thank you so much to Lorenzo. Uh, one of my longest episodes, just because there was so much in there to unpack, and I had a really great time, notwithstanding sort of the uh, technical issues that cropped up while I was putting it together. Uh, you know, this idea of location, and I think of that... Uh, John Kabat-Zinn book, uh, Everywhere You Go, There You Are, or however the title goes. Um, you know, we're approaching a world where, at least in theory, uh, we could do all of our work out of a van down by the river, so we don't necessarily need to occupy a fixed space in the world. And so much of our world has been based around people uh, buying and selling and occupying fixed spaces. Um, it is kind of exciting to think, but when we discuss this process of journey, at the same time, I, I think there's something nice about having your own home base, your own homestead, and being fixed in a spot, but there is something about that drive towards journey 
be it a physical journey, going somewhere, or a mental or emotional journey where you have a destination that I think is very appealing to human beings generally. And it is kind of cool to think about, you know, could I do the work that I'm doing now in a van and just head to different destinations and see what the world takes me and go places and then come back? I don't know that I necessarily would go very far, but just the notion that I could in and of itself, there, there, there's something to that. I find that to be uh, a little bit liberating, but uh, I have a lot of stuff. And I don't know that I could pack all of that into a camper van. So, you know, it'll probably always be a pipe dream, but man, I mean, if you're gonna dream, dream big. Um, I'm gonna be coming back with another episode next week. Uh, I had a great time with this one. I think next week's episode is gonna be great too. But as always, who cares if you listen? Who Cares If You Listen is a podcast produced by me, Antonio Jambardino. The opening credits are performed by me and written by me. The closing credits are based on a menuet by Ottorino Respighi and also played by me badly on my Techniques KN1400. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about this podcast... That's nice. 